Good evening. And welcome to the third lecture of the third week of the 1984 Rare Book School. Next week, the lectures are on Monday, the 30th of July. Stephen Paul Davis of the Library of Congress speaking on automation in rare books. On Tuesday, William Joyce from the New York Public Library speaking on the relationship between archives and special collections. And on Wednesday, Nina Mizinski from the Bibliothèque Nationale talking about 18th century French stereotyping, which there isn't supposed to be any of, which makes it a particularly interesting topic. There will be a reception in room 523 down the hall. We hope it will be in room 523 immediately following this lecture for those of you who are able to attend, which we hope is all of you. Marjorie, it is the custom of the house to present our speakers with Rare Book School t-shirts. Our Monday speaker, Mr. Breslauer, is in the audience, and frankly, I did not dare present him with a t-shirt. <laughs> There was considerable discussion about this this afternoon, and we decided that we did dare present you with one. I'm not quite sure what the significance of this is. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Marjorie Wynn. show you some of our publications, and I have a few slides to show you at the very end. I will try to stop very promptly at 10 of 7 in case there are any burning questions. I would like to go back to 1701, the beginning of it all in New Haven, when 10 congregational clergymen assembled in the house of Pastor Russell in Branford, Connecticut, each of them bringing a few books in his arm and putting them on a table saying, I give these books for the founding of a college in the colony of Connecticut. At least that is the myth. Um, George Pearson, the historian of Yale University, is working on that right now, and he may make it necessary for me to revise that introduction in days to come. The college started in Branford. It moved to Killingworth and to Saybrook, adding a few books here and there. And finally, in 1718, New Haven offered more space and more money than any community if the book, if the collegiate college, as it was called, would move to New Haven. The books were put in ox carts and I'm afraid that some of them were overturned on the way to New Haven by the inhabitants of Saybrook who were very reluctant to see the college leave. The new college building was begun in 1718 in the center of New Haven. Uh, well, it's, it's what is in the center of New Haven now. In those days, it was presumed to have been on the outskirts. Um, the building was nearing completion when Cotton Mather, a friend of Yale, a friend of the collegiate school, 
wrote to Elihu Yale, uh, Governor Elihu Yale, a retired East India merchant in, uh, residing in London, saying, the charge of that expensive building is not yet all paid. And he added that a gift might easily obtain for you a commemoration and perpetuation of your valuable name, as would indeed be much better than an Egyptian pyramid. <laughs> Moved either by the plight of the new college or by a vision of a pyramid in the new world, Governor Yale shipped over nine bales of goods, which, when sold at the port of Boston, realized 562 pounds, which was more money than this collegiate school had ever seen before. The news of this timely gift reached New Haven just at commencement in 1718, and at a hastily convened meeting of the trustees, with a lively sense of benefits to come, I'm afraid never to be realized, they voted to name the school Yale College. Of course, that was one building. The students lived in the, the same building and studied, and the library was an upper floor. That really secured the success of the school. Many collections began coming from London and from Bishop Barclay and from others. In 1742, there were about 2,600 volumes in the library, and President Clapp made the first catalog. A hundred years later, in 1842, the library had its first separate home in a building designed by Henry Austin and modeled on King's College, Cambridge. It was called Dwight Hall for President Timothy Dwight, and it remained the home of the library with two additions, Lindsley Hall and Chittenden Hall, until 1930. By that time, of course, the library had grown enormously and it was outgrowing all, of, all three buildings which are glued together and still used in New Haven today as faculty offices. In the early 20s, Yale had received a, the, a bequest from the late John W. Sterling, the class of 1865, a bachelor lawyer who had left his entire estate to Yale with a request that one monumental building be built in his memory. The money provided several monumental buildings, the Sterling Hall of Medicine, the Sterling Law School, the Sterling Divinity Quadrangle, but the most monumental of them all was the Sterling Memorial Library. It was designed by James Gamble Rogers, and it was opened in July 1st, 1930, when a procession of faculty, students, and staff paraded from the old library to the new, carrying a few books in their arms and placing them ceremoniously on a table inside the Sterling Memorial Library. That is, of course, my favorite building on the Yale campus. The decoration there is the, I've, I've never seen any decoration like that anywhere else. It is a, it's a book to be read, actually. No money was spared in uh, providing carvers for the stone, the stone carving, the wood carving, the painting of the ceilings, the stained glass windows, the iron grills, the gates, and so forth. And it really is a spectacular building. We'll sh I'll show you some of the decoration later on. 
It has, for example, in the librarian's office, that very famous quotation from Aldous Minutius, which I'm sure all of you know, in Latin, over the fireplace in the librarian's office, which translated into English says, whoever you are, you are earnestly requested by Aldous to state your business promptly and take your departure promptly. Andrew Keogh was the librarian at that time, and he reigned in that office for eight years. He was a Scot who had come to, had spent his entire library career at Yale. He had been president of the American Library Association, professor of bibliography as well. There were many interesting people in the Sterling Library in 1930. The rail books had their first separate quarters, and very lovely ones they were too. Chauncey Brewster Tinker, professor of English, was appointed keeper of rare books, and he and the librarian, Miss Emily Hardy Hall, began to transfer from the stacks all of the rare books that should be protected and began to buy research material which was not, could not be bought out of the general funds of the main library. Another very interesting character at Yale at that time was Donald G. Wing. He was head of the audit department, and he was amazed, he always said, that Yale would pay him to do what he wanted to do more than anything else, which was to buy books. Mr. Wing was a scruffy-looking person, very seedy with, with um, three-by-five slips of paper oozing from his pockets. His desk was monumentally untidy, famous for that throughout the book world. But as you know, he single-handedly carried on the short title catalog from 1641 to 1700, and in indeed has introduced a word, wing, into the English language. Bernard Nolenberg was the, succeeded Mr. Keogh as librarian. Mr. Nolenberg was a lawyer, and he had been persuaded by Wilmoth Lewis, a member of the corporation, to give up his practice in Washington and come to New Haven as librarian. Mr. Nolenberg could not always find his way around to the catalog, but uh, a failure shared, of course, by a great many other uh, bright people. But he was a very uh, fine historian and wrote several books, uh, important books in early American history. When the Second World War came, Mr. Nolenberg was called back to Washington, and in his absence, a young man who had been spending a great deal of time around Yale, the Yale Library, was made acting librarian, and this was James T. Babb. Mr. Nolenberg decided not to come back to Yale at the end of the war, and Mr. Babb was made the librarian in 1945. For the next 20 years, Mr. Babb led Yale into the front ranks of the great libraries of the world. The tall, handsome, graceful librarian, as transparent and guileless as the day he came out of the West, had a way with donors that was the despair of rivals. His deep voice, his deliberate and unaffected speech, his forthright manner and patent honesty, his unabashed sentiment, his single-minded devotion to Yale, all of these combined to make him irresistible. 
During his regime, almost a million and a half volumes and an unknown number of manuscripts were added to the library. Among them, the Baysan book, the Americana and Ornithological collections of William Robertson Coe, the Boswell Papers, the John J. Slocum collection of James Joyce, the Thomas E. Marston medieval manuscripts, the von Faber Dufour collection of German Baroque literature, David Wagstaff's sporting books, the Pacific Northwest collection of Winlock Miller, Jr., Edwin J. Beinecke's Robert Louis Stevenson collection, and Frederick W. Beinecke's Western Americana. The climax of his career, of course, was the designing and the opening of the Beinecke Library. It was through his friendship with the Beinecke family that they decided to give to Yale a rare book library to endow it, its staff, and to provide a very generous bequest for the purchase of books and manuscripts. The Beinecke family selected the architect Gordon Bunshaft of Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill. And Mr. Bunshaft designed a building which is, in effect, an iceberg. And you see it tipped. The first thing that you see is a, a, a building with two. The, the two important features of the building are the inch and a quarter marble that is, makes up its outside wall, and the glass-enclosed book stack rising six stories in front of you. When it was opened in 1963, all of the books in the rare book room at Yale were moved over to the Beinecke Library, plus three other collections with their curators. One of these was the American Literature Collection, the other was the Western Americana Collection, and the third was the German Literature Collection. Herman W. Liebert was appointed the librarian, and he was succeeded in 1972 by, when he retired, by Louis March, professor of English at Yale, who resigned in 1977. We had three acting librarians from 77 to 82, and in July 82, Ralph W. Franklin became the director of the Beinecke Library. We have about 500,000 books and several ma million manuscripts in the library, and we are particularly strong in English and American history and literature, European history and literature, illuminated manuscripts, incunabula, Greek and Latin literature, papyri, printing history, playing cards, alchemy and the occult, Judaica, sporting books, exploration and travel, archives of Russian emigre authors, and so on and so on. We have built on strength, of course, in the years since we have been there. And in 1983, I do want you to have a chance to look at this if you can, we had a wonderful exhibition in 1983 celebrating 20 years of the Beinecke Library. We have about 115 items here, and they were chosen not because they were the most outstanding things that we had bought, but because they showed a certain fit with collections that we already had, and because they were things that were being worked on in many cases. So we tried to combine in this exhibition acquisitions, supporting collections that we already had, plus 
a description of some of the work that is being done on them, and I hope you will have a chance to look at that. We have, of course, branched out. We don't do, we don't just add to what we already have. If anyone had told me 10 years ago that we would begin to collect modern uh, movements such as futurism, Dadaism, surrealism, and vorticism, I would really have been uh, astonished. But that is, in fact, what happened. These things uh, do come about in a very strange way. It took one short telephone call from a publisher in New York to the librarian at Yale to say, I know where there is a very large and important collection of the papers of F.T. Marinetti. Uh, if you are interested in them, you do this and that. And we did this and that, and someone went to Italy and had a look at them. A large amount of money was raised, and they arrived in enormous packing cases a year or so later. I and Marinetti's daughter, Luce Marinetti Barbie, prepared an exhibition in 1982, I believe it was. And while that exhibition was up, several people saw it, read about it. One man walked in off the street saying, I think that the place, uh, that this is just the place for some papers of Mondrian that I have got. Another person walked in and said, I have um, the greatest collection of Dadaism. And he said, in the world, which is a very, uh, not in the world, um, but around. And he was a very young man, but he walked around the Beinecke Library, not saying a great deal, uh, but in the end saying that he thought this was the place that he would like to have his collection come to. And we ended up buying it. We then get a telephone call from someone in California saying, I have the finest collection of vorticism and Wyndham Lewis, and you really should have it. And so we begin adding that to our collection. Max Ernst's widow hears about our collection, and the next thing we know, she's given us Max Ernst's collection of surrealism, and so it goes. <laughs> Those are some of the ways that you get, but just wait until you hear some of the other stories about how things are cut. And I do want to tell you about the, how the Gertrude Stein collection came about. Some of you have heard Donald Gallup talk in Texas about the making of the Ezra Pound archive. I think that you might enjoy the a story about Mr. Gallup and, and the Gertrude Stein papers. The per, because the personality of the curator, of course, is immensely important in these matters. Just as Mr. Babb was very important in getting large collections uh, for the library, so Mr. Gallup has been very important in, in acquiring material, especially to add to the Gertrude Stein collection. Mr. Gallup had graduated from Yale in 1934 and taught English at... Southern Methodist University for a, year, a few years. He had been very active in the library when, as an undergraduate, had worked in the library as an undergraduate. And so he was offered a job cataloging books in the Sterling Library. He resigned his job at Texas, came back to Yale in 1941, and just at the time when Gertrude Stein had been persuaded by Thornton Wilder to deposit her papers in the Beinecke Library. 
Thornton Wilder, of course, was a graduate of Yale and a native of New Haven and lived in New Haven, and he had deposited his papers there. She sent her papers over on deposit, and Donald Gallup, who had been interested in her writings as an undergraduate, decided to prepare an exhibition. The exhibition was prepared, and it was to open on the 22nd of February, 1941. A little catalog had been printed. Everything was in order, except that Donald Gallup received a message from Washington, D.C., ordering him to appear for induction into the U.S. Army on the 20th of February of 1941. He left New Haven, left the exhibition to be opened by Norman Holmes Pearson, who had not had to open the exhibition on the 22nd, but also get married on the 22nd. Um, eventually, Miss Stein heard that Mr. Gallup had had to miss the opening of the exhibition. A little catalog was sent to her, and she sent him a note saying, the show has given me a lot of pleasure, and one of these days, over there or over here, perhaps I will be able to tell you so. The cuckoo has just been cuckooing in the garden, and that, they say, brings a blessing, and I will be glad to divide it with you. Well, Mr. Gallup's uh, career in the Army took him to England for a year or so, and then to Paris. And one of the first things he did was to write a note to Miss Stein saying, that he would like to claim his part of the cuckoo's blessing. She wrote a letter immediately saying, come, uh, come and visit. He did, and he became a regular visitor uh, to Miss Stein and Alice Tuckless. There, of course, he met a great many other people. Virgil Thompson was there. He was preparing his uh, opera, uh, The Mother of Us All. Um, and Donald Gallup became a character in the opera that Gertrude Stein wrote. She had sized up his character, uh, I think, remarkably well, because he has very few words to speak, lines to speak, but uh, his longest and most important speech says, last but not least, first and not best, I am tall as a man, I am firm as a clam, and I never change from day to day. Any of you who know Mr. Gallup will um, feel that that is um, uh, true indeed. But the whole point of this story is that Mr. Gallup, I'm quite sure as a result of his friendship with Miss Stein, she decided immediately to give her collection to Yale, and she did. And Donald Gallup then began, over the years, writing to the people whose letters were in the collection, asking them if they would, in turn, give Miss Stein's letters to them. And this is what he has done so remarkably well and built up over the years. And the result of that, uh, large collections of the works of Marsden Hartley, Georgia O'Keeffe, Alfred Stieglitz, Mabel Dodge Lewin, Muriel Draper, and many others. Mr. Gallup, is, he was curator of the American Literature Collection until his um, retirement about three years ago. And of course, as you know, he is the bibliographer of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. Finally, let me say uh, just a few words about a collection that illustrates two of the three main problems that any rare book library faces, acquisition and access. 
Uh, this again is the result of an unusual meeting. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on board ship in the late 40s, an Englishman named Evelyn Hutchinson, who is a very well-known professor at Yale, a zoologist, a limnologist, and an ecologist, and his wife met Rebecca West and her husband. Rebecca West, uh, you know, the very famous, one of the greatest journalists and critics of the 20th century. They became very friendly. Miss West, as she then was, wrote to the Hutchinsons frequently. Uh, Mr. Hutchinson began to prepare a bibliography of her works. In 1957, she was invited to give the Terry Lectures at Yale. She did. They were called The Court and the Castle. It was published by the Yale University Press in 1957. In 1958, she decided to begin giving her papers to Yale. And she started out by bringing to New Haven from New York on the train a suitcase, a very unprepossessing suitcase filled with the letters to her from H.G. Wells. You will remember that uh, when she was a very young woman, she had a son, Anthony West, uh, whose father was H.G. Wells. Unfortunately, Miss West left the suitcase on the train when she got off in New Haven, and it rode, it rode safely to Boston, and I'm happy to say it returned safely to New Haven. But that was just a foreshadowing of things to come. In 19, the same year, later that year, she sent a very important packet to the library uh, addressed to Ben Hibbs. It, is, it said, the message said, it is my wish that the trustees of Yale University Library should accept my papers, such as I send them during my lifetime and leave them on my death, and keep them unopened until I, my husband Henry Maxwell Andrews, and my son Anthony West are dead. When they can make any use of them, they please. I am putting this in a more formal way presently when I get the time, but I think this will suffice for the moment. A week later, she sent a telegram, regret letter in inadvertently addressed to librarian as Ben Hibbs instead of James Tabb. Please, <laughs> please accept the packet. Well, we accepted the packet. The packet was safely there. And that is the way the Rebecca West collection has continued to go. Since then, we have received a lot of papers from Dame Rebecca. She, you will know that, unfortunately, the relationship between her and her son, Anthony West, has been a bitter and acrimonious one. And she, that is why she put the restriction on the papers that they were not to be examined by anyone. Um, until after the death. She had died in the death, and her husband and Anthony had also died. It was understood by everyone that her papers were to come to Yale. As late as in 1970, for example, a librarian in, in Johannesburg was writing to her, asking her if she would give either the originals or the photostats of the letters from Sarah Gertrude Millen, a South African novelist, 
to the library in Johannesburg. She wrote that the letters were at Yale, her papers were at Yale, that they were restricted, but when the time came, all the restrictions were uh, lifted, she was requesting the library to send photocopies of these letters to Johannesburg. In the letter she wrote to me explaining all this, she said, you will see the purport of the enclosed correspondence. The request that you should give photostats of Mrs. Millen's letters may involve no work at all, as she was such a stupid and wicked old lady who loved apartheid better than life, that I think I destroyed all of her quite uninteresting letters. I cannot, I cannot think why I did not set up as one of the only three novelists in a small country. It must make life easier. There is seldom any letter of uh, Dame Rebecca's that isn't full of something as outrageous or as libelous as that. <laughs> Dame Rebecca died on the Ides of March, 1982-83, and in her will there was no mention of Yale University. This was a great shock to uh, all of us, as you can imagine. Her archive, half of it is at Yale, half of it was in her a flat in London. The part, the, the half in London is being prepared for sale. Uh, it will be offered to us first. Uh, if we are not able to buy it, it will be sold at auction in bits and pieces and dispersed. There was another very strange thing that quite surprised us, and that was that Dame Rebecca had appointed two biographers. One, uh, Victoria Glendening, to write a short biography, rather quickly, and the other one, uh, Stanley Olson, to write a longer and more scholarly biography, maybe in the next 10 or 15 years. The problem is that the estate, although they knew the intention of Rebecca West to give us the papers, is not giving us the papers. And the problem on our side is that we made an agreement with Dame Rebecca uh, not to allow her papers to be examined. And so even though she appointed two biographers, we are not able to allow them to see the papers. And there we are. It is a terrible impasse. Um, it illustrates what, uh, if possible, to avoid but one can't, cannot always do this. We have the pre-World War II correspondence, and in her London flat are most of the things that have, she's accumulated after that. There are, of course, letters here in both collections, letters, journals, manuscripts, uh, manuscripts of her play, of her novels, and of her essays, and so on. We have about 800 letters from, the, from Dame Rebecca to the Hutchinsons. These are available, and we are, have made them available to her biographers. We are still buying things. Just two weeks ago at the auction in London, we bought 26 new letters by Rebecca West, the earliest that I have ever heard about, and they will be coming over. The letters to the Hutchinsons, of course, are absolutely fascinating, as is every letter that Dame Rebecca wrote. I just want to close by giving you a small uh, additional excerpt, which I think you might enjoy, from one of her letters to the Hutchinsons. In 1959, as you know, she was um, made a dame of the British Empire, and at her investiture, she, she describes it to the Hutchinsons, 
and uh, in this letter of February 14, she says, the telephone rang about three weeks ago and a voice said, this is Buckingham Palace. Her Majesty the Queen is giving a small luncheon party on February 11 and would be glad if you could attend. At which I said in a most Lady Bracknell voice, are you sure you mean February 11? That is Ash Wednesday. There was a slight stir at the end of the telephone, <laughs> and I was assured it was all right. But I received an amended invitation for the 5th of February, and when I got it, I wrote and apologized and said I did not intend to keep up such a Bracknell-like attitude. When I arrived there for the luncheon, the master of the household and the lady-in-waiting burst into happy laughter at the sight of me, and it appeared that the master of the household, having asked, already asked the eight other guests, then rang up a bishop and said, I've asked eight people to lunch with the queen on Ash Wednesday, and I suppose it will be all right if the queen goes to church and then gives this luncheon party, but there's a new dame, Dame Rebecca West, who seems to think it won't do. <laughs> The bishop said acidly, well, I do not know the lady, but you have cause to be grateful to her, which I think a glorious Episcopal answer. <laughs> Elsewhere, uh, just one more quotation from this letter, this long and wonderful letter about being at the, uh, for lunch with the Queen. The Queen spoke to me and an Australian journalist who was standing with me, and I found myself breaking the law that she must choose the subject and begin the conversation. I said, there are two things I want to tell you. <laughs> the first was how wonderful was the impression that she had left in Paris, how they felt that they had arranged something wonderful and that she had come and made it more wonderful, and that an old Frenchman had said, it was beautiful as a ballet and solemn as high mass. I also told, also told her how pleased people were with her for lending some of her best diamonds to the diamond exhibition at Christie's, that they did not like to stare at them when they met her, and it was lovely to look at them. <laughs> she then told me that she had written a thoroughly, now the queen that is, that she had written a thoroughly nasty letter to the Times, which had printed a photograph of a brooch among her loans upside down, suggesting that they should take more care in the future and explained that she had a special feeling about diamonds because she went to Amsterdam and wore the brooch made out of two odd bits left over when the main gem was cut from the Cullinan diamond, and had asked if anybody at Asher's, which she visited, remembered the cutting of them. And old Lucian Asher, 78 years old, came forward and burst into tears because he said that he had been so frightened over the cutting of that gem when he had done it years before, and it was wonderful to see it again. Well, I can go on reading uh, endlessly about what the Queen said to me and what I said to the Queen, but do turn out the lights and let me show you a few slides and end up with another bit of something else here. Yeah, yeah.